Open up down to the book of 1 John as we continue our series in 1 John. And we'll be in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you need a Bible, they're scattered around under the chairs in front of you. And you'll find 1 John uh, chapter 2 on page 1,218 in those Bibles. 1,218. And if this is your first time here, man, we're glad you're with us. And you will be most helped in this message by, by having an open Bible... Uh, even this is the first time you've ever opened a Bible, but having an open Bible and following along, because our hope is that our teaching simply goes through what the passage says. And so in a minute, I'll read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, you know, one of the most stressful things about buying a house, if you've walked through that, is the home inspection. It's stressful whether you're selling or buying. From the side of the seller... You think you've reached a deal, but now you have to have this home inspection done, and there's fear that, like, maybe some major problem is going to come up, and it's going to wreck the deal. But if you're the one buying the home, it's stressful when it gets to that part, because by that time, you've, you've settled on a house that you, that you love, or at least that you like, right? And, and if you're like my wife and I have been in, in the past when we bought a home, you've already started planning how you're going to decorate, like where you're going to put the Christmas tree, Right? The little projects you're going to do, and it can sort of consume your mind. They're in the initial stages. And then the home inspection comes. And the fear is that it's going to unearth something that will make it so you decide, I, we can't buy this home. I remember that, that happened to my wife and I, the first home that we bought. It was a beautiful small home near the university. And it had been recently remodeled, so the upstairs was just, it was beautiful. It was nice siding, nice carpet, the kitchen looked good. Um, and then we went into the basement with Ernie, the home inspector. Uh, and, and as he's walking us through different things, he takes, us, takes me to a part of the basement that hadn't been finished. And you could see the concrete wall. And this home was from 1924, I believe. And he took a screwdriver and he showed me how he could just chip at the concrete and it would just crumble. It was like, it was like sand. It was just crumbling away. We did not buy that house, right? Now, the primary purpose, you might say, of a home inspection, you could say the primary purpose of that test is to, to make you decide not to buy a home. But you could also say the primary purpose is that it would give you confidence when you buy this home, to say this is a solid home, uh, this is stable, this is, this is something I want to buy, and so you go into this major purchase with confidence. Just like you could also say, to shift to a slightly different analogy, there's people whose jobs it is to go around and uh, assess the integrity of bridges that we drive across every day on the highways and freeways. Their job is to assess to see, is this solid so that those who drive on it can drive with confidence, not worrying that it's going to collapse at any moment. Well, in the same way, 1 John, this whole book of five chapters, it is giving us tests so that we can examine our faith to see if it is real and solid, and stable, and saving. The primary goal is not to expose a false profession of faith, of faith, but that could be a secondary goal. It could be a secondary effect if somebody reads through this book, or they hear it taught, and they conclude, I don't think I'm truly a Christian. But that's not the point. The point of the book, it says in chapter 5, and we saw this in the introduction a few weeks ago, is so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you can look at these tests, and there's three that cycle over and over again, and say, you know, I think I really have come to faith in Christ. 
It's important because a common question for somebody who has, has grown up in church, or, or maybe they made a profession of faith in Christ when they were older, is, am I, am I really saved? Am I truly a Christian? Or is it just something I'm going through because my parents did this? Is it just because it's a routine? Is it, is it real? Is it saving? Is it solid? And so 1 John will point to three things over and over again. The test of truth. Do I have a heart for truth? Love. Do I have a growing love for God and others? And obedience. Not perfect obedience. We've already seen that in chapter 1 but a growing heart to obey. And, and those three things we're going to see over and over again. Truth, love, obedience. Truth, love, and obedience. Today, it's this test of obedience. In this passage, we'll look at this issue of obedience as not something that saves us, not something that gets us into God's family, but something you can look at and say, am I in God's family? Well, if so, it ought to show in this heart for obedience. Let's go ahead and read this now. 1 John chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. God wants you to know that you know him. So he gives a series of tests here. This first one has to do with obedience. But notice it begins really with clarifying what might be a misunderstanding from what's already been said in this book. And the clarifying thing here is this, that the promise of forgiveness isn't an excuse to sin. And then it'll roll into our main point of the passage. But I want to make sure we get this first. There's a concern, I think, that John has that somebody could take what's already been said and misapply it to excuse just a life of sin. Because think about what's already been said in chapter 1. In chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Somebody could read that and come to the conclusion, well... I don't have to pretend I don't have sin. And if I sin, God will forgive me. So why not just go do whatever I want? Why not just give myself to everything that the Bible would call sin and disobedience? Well, well John now is, is correcting that and giving a good reason why we ought not to do that. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Notice he starts there with, My little children. How would you feel if I addressed you as that today? My little children, right? You would think it's strange for a number of reasons, and one of those reasons being half of you are probably older than me, right? And so you think, that seems a little strange. John, when he's writing this, is probably 80 years old. He's near the end of his life, and he's writing 
with fatherly affection. And in fact, he uses this saying seven times in this book, my little children, my little children. It's appropriate for him as an 80-year-old, but what I want you to note is that as he writes about something serious, sin and forgiveness and obedience, he's not writing as like an academic, he's not writing as like thundering down judgment. He's writing out of a heart of fatherly love to people that he cares for. Say, my little children, listen, draw, draw in close and listen. And what he says is, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Our heart should be not, what can I get away with? Not, what's the line? How close can I get? Not, God's going to forgive me anyways, so I'm just going to do this. I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. No. No, he says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we know from context, it's more like a but when you sin. Because he's already made the point that that's all of us. So he says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. It's not an excuse to sin, but I want you to make sure you get the solution for your sin. He says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, and when you sin, he says, you have an advocate who's our propitiation. And I want to define both of those two terms because I think both of them we can misunderstand and we could miss this passage. They're maybe a little bit unfamiliar to us. The idea of an advocate it can define it this way. It's a helper and defender who speaks on behalf of another. It's a helper or defender. The, the, the helper, it's actually the same word, if you're familiar with in uh, John, where it talks about Jesus, or talks about the Holy Spirit as our comforter. Another helper. It's actually the same word that's used here of Jesus as our advocate. He is our helper. This idea of one who speaks on behalf of another. Uh, imagine... You're at home one day and you get a knock at the door and you open it up and you see police lights out front and a couple officers there and they're there to arrest you. And they're going to take you in. Who are you going to call? Well, one of your first calls is going to be, if you're able to, a lawyer. Why? Because a lawyer is going to speak on your behalf and defend you. That's kind of this term. You can think of advocate like a defense attorney. But not quite. Because what's a defense attorney going to do? They're going to try to explain why you're really innocent. right? That whatever they're accusing you of, you didn't actually do. Or they're going to try to find a technicality, a violation of how this thing was done so that you can get off. Or they're going to argue for a lighter sentence. There's, there's you know, appropriate things they might do there. That is not what Jesus does as our advocate. Because we are guilty. Instead, what he does is he comes and he speaks on our behalf as our representative, not pointing to our innocence, but his own righteousness. And here's why I say that. Look at, look at how the verse goes on. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That is not just a throwaway term, like just to fill in space. He is our advocate because he is righteous perfectly obedient, never does anything wrong, never did anything wrong, died, as we'll see here in a moment, to take God's wrath, to take God's anger. And so he stands in the courtroom, if he's the advocate, God the Father, as the judge, not saying Dan is innocent, but saying, I am righteous, talking about himself, and Dan has trusted in me, 
so my righteousness is given to him. That is our hope. As our advocate, he speaks on our behalf in that way. And it goes on um, in a way that clarifies this. But I want to make sure we're, we're not misunderstanding it in two ways. Our advocate is not saying we're innocent. He's saying they're righteous because they've trusted in me. And our advocate is not standing between a God who just wants to drop the hammer and Jesus is reluctantly talking him out of it or something like that. No, the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit are working in unity here so that God's justice is satisfied and his mercy is extended. And as our advocate, he takes that upon himself. And we see that as we move into this next key word. It says he is our advocate. And then verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. How many of you use the word propitiation in a sentence this week? Um, probably not, unless you were like teaching this passage, right? It is a, it's a specific theological word, and I want to make sure we get it. A propitiation can maybe define this way. It's an offering or a sacrifice made by a guilty person in order to placate or appease, or you might even say satisfy, the person who has been offended. It's an offering that is designed to satisfy what is a righteous anger by somebody who's been offended. I'm going to give you another analogy that it's a weak analogy because nothing is perfect at this, but I want, I want you to get a sense of this and we'll show the weakness of it. Uh, imagine it's a situation where a husband has upset his wife and he knows he's blown it. He, he's not under the impression that it was a misunderstanding or that she's really at fault. He knows he did something wrong and she is angry and he knows it and it's a just anger and so he decides he's going to bring her some flowers and, and these flowers are going to be part of an apology. And his hope is that it will somehow satisfy her anger, even in the midst of his guilt. Well, it's kind of like that, but not quite. Right? It's not quite because it's a trivial example. And it's not quite because the flowers don't like absorb the anger. Right? If your wife takes those and she trashes them, I think she feels better about you. I mean, there's other issues in your marriage, right? It, um, so it's an imperfect analogy. But there is no perfect analogy because this is so unique to the dynamics of the father and the son. It moves from the courtroom and the advocate to the temple and the sacrifice. It moves from this advocate who's speaking on our behalf now to propitiation as the sacrifice that is offered on behalf of the guilty person that is us. And Jesus is this sacrifice that is the propitiation. He, he takes that just anger of God upon himself in his death, which is why he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Takes it all upon himself. To understand this, we have to understand the righteous anger of God that we see running through the Bible. Many things about God, but this is one of them. Uh, a, a just anger. We see it like in Numbers 11, 1. The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. These people are continually complaining about the Lord and his, what he's not doing for them. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. There was a righteous anger that was stirred up against the people. It's the righteous anger that we see in John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath, which is another word for anger here, of God abides on him. From Old to New Testament, 
It describes God's holy, righteous, appropriate anger towards his creation that has rebelled against him, harmed one another, sinned against him. There's a righteous anger. And to be just will come out. And yet, he is also loving and merciful and gracious. And to bring all those things together, we have the perfect sacrifice of Jesus who is the propitiation that satisfies God's wrath by taking it upon himself as a sacrifice. So if you can picture God's wrath that I have built up and you have built up like this pitcher full of water poured out on the sun, all of that wrath poured out on him till there's not even a drop left. And if he shook it over your head, there's none left to drip upon you. It's all been taken by Christ. That is this propitiation. But again, we can misunderstand that as an angry God who just wants to squash and then Jesus who's like holding him back against the Father's will. No, they're in unison together. In 1 John chapter 4, jumping ahead a couple chapters, uses the same word, but notice this. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we love God. It didn't start with us, it started with him. He loved us first, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Father and Son working together because He loves you. So He sent His Son to be the propitiation to satisfy that wrath because of our sin. Notice one more phrase here, and then we'll see how it leads to the rest of the passage. In the end of verse 2 it says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The idea here is not that the whole world automatically is saved. This idea of universalism, that everybody's saved. No, First John is already making clear how you can know that you are saved, implying there's some who are not. But rather, the idea that Jesus is the only and exclusive Savior available to mankind. There is no other way, no other source. He is sufficient. He is exclusive only through Him. But it is through Him. Where does this verse come in from what's already been said in 1 John and what's to come? Well, keep in mind, what's been said in chapter 1 is that we don't need to hide or minimize or deny our sin out of shame. We can bring it into the open and bring it to God. Why? Because he is our advocate and he is our propitiation. So we don't need to hide it. We bring it. We confess it knowing that he forgives and he has taken it all upon himself. It's what explains why we can bring it to the light. But it will also motivate our behavior to come. And that's what, how it leads into the rest of this. Because the one who gets this, who says, my sin was so significant that the only solution was God himself and the person of Christ coming down and bearing that death upon himself and now speaking as my advocate. Why would I now entertain myself by the things for which Christ died? Why would I run after these things knowing that it was the death of Jesus that was brought about by this? I'm not going to pursue these things. In fact, I'm going to want to obey God all the more. It tells us what's been done with our sin and it motivates us to then want to follow him. 
One, one quote on this from John Stott that I love. It says, thus the Father's provision for the sinning Christian, the one, who has, the one who has sinned but now sees it and brings it to light is in his Son who possesses a threefold qualification. And this is what we've seen. His righteous character, his propitiatory death, and his heavenly advocacy. That's why we can confess. That's why we can bring, that's why we can bring it to the light. Is because Jesus is perfectly righteous when we're not. He's taken that wrath upon himself and he is now our advocate. So, he says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Now look at verse three. This is how it gets into really the point of this passage, but built around this theology of what he's done for us. Verse three, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Not how do we come to know him. That's faith in our advocate, the one who died in our place. That's how we come into relationship with God. That's not the question. It's how do I know I've done that? And he points to our obedience and he points to it without nuance. He says if we obey God's commands, it shows that we know God. John writes with bluntness and without nuance. You might have people like that in your life. You might have other friends that kind of nuance around things and they say, hey, what you did wasn't that bad or it was kind of understandable why you would say this. And then you have another friend that comes in and just says, you know what, you were a jerk there. You shouldn't have done that. And they speak with clarity and without nuance. And you're like, oh, thank you. I needed to hear that. That's sort of what John does throughout this book. We might want to nuance this some more and say, well, okay, but we don't perfectly obey. And there might be some people who appear to obey, but really it's from wrong motives. And, and all of that's true. But John's not giving that nuance here. The rest of Scripture sort of provides that. But here he just cuts through and he says, do you want to know how you can know if you've really come to know him? Do you want to obey? Do, do you have a heart to obey? Do you have a growing desire to obey? Are you perfectly going to keep God's law? No. Chapter 1 has already said that. But do you have a desire to? Or, when you do the right thing, is it because in your mind you're thinking, I don't want my parents to find out, or I don't want the consequences of this, or I'll be embarrassed, or I'm going to get punished. You might do the right thing then, but not from the right heart. But instead is it, you know, I, Jesus has done so much for me. I want to obey. I, I, I want to. He says that's an evidence that you have come to know him. And I want you to, I want you to skip over that language. Look again at verse 3. By this we know we have come to know him. He's talking about how can you know that you're saved? How can you know you'll go to heaven? How can you know you're a Christian? But the language that is used is, do you know him? Which is just beautiful, I think. A friend who served overseas as a missionary in a closed country, meaning where it's illegal to, to go as a missionary. Uh, but he's building relationships primarily with college students, sharing the gospel with them. And there was one particular student who he had met but not talked with at length. And the student comes up to him and says, I, I heard that you know God. Is that true? And he's kind of caught off guard. He says, yeah. And so the student said, how, can, you, can you tell me how I can know God? What would you say? How, how would you answer that question? 
Well, my friend, one thought he had is, is this a trap? Like, this seems too good. Um, but it wasn't. It ended up actually being just a rich conversation about the gospel, and the student came to know the Lord later. But it's this idea of, do you know him? And if so, and evidence, it's not merely, you come to church, do you sing? Have you been baptized? What does your Instagram account look like? Do you put up Bible verses there? But one way you can know is, does it show up in a heart to obey? And he's going to keep making this point from different angles. And so we're going to go a little quicker through these verses, but I want you to see, keeps making it from different angles. Next, kind of the flip side. Basically making this point, if we don't obey God but claim to know God, then we're lying. Again, without nuance. Verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him. So the one is saying, yes, I'm a Christian. I've come to know him. I've believed in him. I've trusted in Christ. I was baptized. I, you know, whatever. But, well, mine here says, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That's this test, right? These three tests, truth, love, and obedience that we'll see over and over again. It's this test of obedience and saying, if you say, you can say all that you want, but if there's not a growing heart to obey, you need to really consider, do you really know him? Again, we could look at probably a dozen verses just within 1 John on this. So you're going to see it many times over the next couple months. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, it says it this way. No one who is born of God, another way of saying, they're a Christian. They're saved. They know God. They've been given new life. He practices sin. They may sin, they may mess up, they may lose their temper, may do something wrong, but it's not a practice, an ongoing thing. When they sin, they're convicted and they confess it and they want to grow and they want to turn. They sin, they come back to their advocate, but they're growing. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about one who says they know God, but there's no growing heart for obedience. And not to like drop the hammer in anger, but for, with clarity to say, Maybe a lie, if that's the case. Another nuance, the next verse. Now from the perspective of loving God, that loving God leads to obedience. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, another way of talking about obedience, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Love of God here is talking about the believer's love for God. Not God's love for us, which does also certainly motivate obedience, but it's along the lines of what Jesus says here in John 14, 15, where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is essentially saying the same thing, that love is perfected in this heart to obey. Again, a true love for God, it says, will show itself that way. And you know this in other relationships. Think about this in another relationship. Think about it if it was like a husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, even, even just friends. And one says, oh, I love you. I so appreciate you. And yet their actions show otherwise. And in their actions, they're constantly belittling that person, mocking them, abusing them verbally, maybe even physically. And it's often disorienting for that person because they say, you say you love me, but your actions are so contrary to that. Your love ought to issue forth in, in the conduct. And it's saying the same thing. It says if we love God, it will be perfected, meaning completed. Perfected has the idea of completed. It will be completed. It will accomplish a growing heart to obey. It 
it fits together that way. So it's continuing to build on the same point, and it does it with one more verse, one more idea. Skip a couple here. Verse 6. It simply says, to obey God is to live like Jesus. Again, look at verse 6. It carries on the thought from the end of verse 5. By this we know that we are in him. Which again, it's great. This passage doesn't just use the language of like, are you saved? Although we sometimes use those terms. But it says, do you know him? Are you in him? Do you abide with him? That's the language that's used here to talk about the Christian. It says, the one who is in him. Verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Our life pattern should increasingly mirror Jesus' life. If we say we follow him, that's how it kind of shows up. That's one way it shows up. Um, one of the best-selling books in, in history, actually, is it's from 1896. It's the book In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. How many of you have read In His Steps? I see a few hands go up. Yeah. One of the best-selling books for two reasons. One, it's pretty compelling and easy read. Uh, two, they messed up on the copyright for it when they wrote the book, and so anybody can print it, whoever wanted to. So they printed lots of copies. Um, but it actually has a pretty good message in it. Um, and the, the message of it, it's this fiction book, and it tells a story of a pastor in a small town who challenges his congregation uh, not to do anything, not to make a decision, not to take an action without first asking themselves one question. And what's the question, those of you that read it? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? So they ask themselves the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then they, they try to do that. It, when I first became a Christian in the 90s, it uh, was kind of popular again. And it was popular because of these little bracelets that people wore that said, WWJD, how many of you 90s youth group kids wore WWJD? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, and, and it's kind of made a comeback now, sort of like a retro thing, which is weird when... Things that were popular when you were a kid are now retro, right? Um, but it just had the initials WWJD to ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Isn't that exactly what this verse is saying? The one who abides in him. Abide means to remain, to be close in relationship. The one who abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Remember the point of this passage is not how do you come into fellowship with God? That's through faith in Christ. Jesus, our advocate. Jesus, our propitiation. But the point of this passage is, how do you know that you've done that? It's one more point. It says, if you've done that, there's going to be a growing desire to walk as he walked. So we're going to wrap this up. with Two points that we've seen over and over again. One, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here. Obedience, as we're talking about here, is an evidence of salvation not a means of salvation. That's what it means. It's not like you enter into a relationship with God by becoming better and better and better and better as a person, and once you're good enough, he opens the doors and he says, come on in. Now that would be, that'd be obedience as a means of salvation, but that's not the biblical message. The biblical message is, you are so messed up, and I am so messed up, and the sin runs so deep that it's impossible for us to get ourselves to God. We, we needed a salvation that is apart from ourselves. We needed, we needed Jesus who comes and he lives the life you could not live and he dies the death you deserve as a propitiation. God's wrath taken by him and he's now your advocate. 
So you trust in him. That is how you are saved. That is the means of salvation is by trusting in him. But our obedience ought to be an evidence that we have been saved. So, an application of this passage is we have to examine ourselves honestly. The primary point of examining is so that you're truly in Christ. You can lay your head on your pillow at night with assurance, knowing that if you died, you would be with him. You don't have this question lingering, am I really saved? It, it answers that. As you look at your life and you see the Holy Spirit at work, producing a desire for truth, a desire to love people, we'll see those coming up, and a growing heart to obey. But a secondary effect might be somebody who honestly examines themselves and says, you know what? I don't have that. I don't have that. 2 Corinthians 13.5, as well as the whole book of 1 John, does encourage us to test ourselves that way. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you. You're in the faith. He is in you. Unless indeed you fail the test. What's the test? Well, 1 John is kind of giving us this test. Is there a growing heart to obey? Not perfect obedience, but a growing heart, a desire to obey because you love God, because you want to walk as Jesus walked. And if not, then come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's pray.